0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind the scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Our guest today is Dr. Paul J. Schnartz. Dr. Schnartz is Professor of Surgery, Vice Chair for Academic Affairs, and Chief of Trauma, Surgical Critical Care, and Emergency General Surgery at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. He is also the Trauma Medical Director at UNMC and Medical Director of the Emergency Medical Services for the Omaha Fire Department. Dr. Schnartz is from New York, where he completed his undergraduate coursework at Fordham University in the Bronx. He obtained his MD at the University of Connecticut, followed by a one-year fellowship in anatomic and clinical pathology. He subsequently began a general surgery residency at Maine Medical Center, followed by a trauma surgical critical care fellowship at Vanderbilt University. He has also completed the Surgical Education Research Fellowship with the Association for Surgical Education. He was faculty at East Carolina University for more than 10 years before joining UNMC in 2012. Dr. Schnartz was most recently president of the Association of Program Directors in Surgery. Welcome Dr. Schnartz.
0: Thank you, Megan. It's uh, good to be here. It's a real honor to uh, have been asked to speak today.
1: So we like to start um, all of our podcasts by um, introducing you and kind of hearing from you about your background and what led you towards trauma and also your roles in education
0: so uh it's it's interesting uh i went to med school actually to do OBGYN and then i found out i hated delivering babies uh which was a real problem if you were going to do ob so i ended up uh coming under the influence of uh, a great mentor a guy by the name of tony morgan at the university of connecticut who was a uh, trauma surgeon and the first uh time i decided i wanted to do surgery it was trauma surgery Because Tony Morgan let me uh, do an X-lap on a guy who was uh, stabbed in the abdomen. And it was just myself as a third-year student and him, and and I was hooked. Uh, With respect to education, interestingly, when I was a first-year medical student, myself and uh, two other people founded something called the Student Education Committee, which was a uh, feedback mechanism to uh, provide the faculty some feedback and you can imagine how that went over with the Dean. And so, uh, from there, I just always had an interest in education and did a fellowship in it. And actually now, uh, the bulk of my research and the bulk of my sort of service activities nationally are devoted to how to teach uh, residents, how to teach students and how to do, uh, how faculty should do evaluations. So, uh, That's a little bit about me, and the only other part about me is I guess I spent 23 years in the military with four tours in Afghanistan and two in Iraq, which were interesting because you had to teach people very quickly who didn't normally do trauma for a living. So, uh, you know, overall, it's been a uh, fun adventure.
2: Tell us more about your pathology fellowship, too.
0: Oh, that was interesting. So I did that uh, purely because... In the olden days when uh, surgeons were going to be trained, they had to do a significant amount of pathology. And so I decided I would be sort of old school and learn how, a little bit about anatomic pathology. And so that, that's why I did it, was really in preparation to be a surgeon.
2: What drew you to trauma eventually? I know you mentioned your first encounter as a medical student, but then as part of uh, your residency, what drew you towards that?
0: So, so this this will uh, may surprise some of your listeners. I've always viewed trauma surgery a little bit like a calling, uh, which sounds very dramatic. But, you know, a lot of the trauma patients have no ability to you know, make wise decisions, and so just like a uh, priest or a pastor, or, you know, takes care of those who can't take care of themselves, I've always viewed trauma surgery in that very much that same light, and so uh, the other thing I like about it is you can really, you can really do no harm, right, if somebody's shot in the heart, all you can do is make them better, and uh, that, that to me has always been a uh, one of the things I've always really enjoyed, as opposed to uh, you know colorectal, which would make me nervous putting somebody under the knife for like a pouch or something elective. So uh, you know the trauma thing works really well. It works. I was a worked EMS in New York City while I was in college, and so I sort of had a feel for that. And then lastly, uh, you know the way I sort of think about trauma is. It gives you an opportunity to work with the residents and the students off hours, whereas a lot of the other specialties are working, you know, nine to five with, with you guys. You know, for me, I really enjoy sort of working with the residents off hours when, uh, you know, there aren't a whole lot of administrative folks around and you can really get to know, know each other.
1: So one other thing we wanted to talk about was reflecting on your year as president of the APDS what were kind of the takeaway points from um, that experience, and and what do you see as the uh, goals that are um, part of the organization for the coming year?
0: So, uh, you know, my my presidential year was wonderful. I was surrounded by some really caring and dedicated program directors, and you know, it's a relatively small group. There's only about a hundred or two hundred sixty or so residencies. And so it's, it's a pretty small group and you get to know everybody really well. So it was a real honor to, uh, have been selected to serve. My goal for the year was to increase the diversity, uh, of the organization. We, you know, so we developed an an organizational task force that was looked at increasing, uh, diversity across the entire organization. You know, for many years, you know, the, chairs of surgery and the residency directors were, you know, old gray haired white men. And, you know, now we have, you know, 50% of the surgeons are female. Uh, we have different, you know, uh, racial profiles coming in. It's really an international sort of pool of excellence. And, uh, we wanted to really have the organization reflect that. And I, so I think that's the, uh, The goal for the future, I think the other goals for the future really are, you know, the goal, the purpose of APDS is really a very pragmatic organization. How can we best teach the residents? How can we best, uh, you know, do faculty development? And I, I think probably in the next probably three to five years, the focus will probably shift a bit from how do you best teach the residents faculty development. How how can we develop the faculty to be good teachers of residents? Because in the past prior to the duty hours you really learned by immersion and now the faculty I think have to be a little bit more sophisticated in and how they uh, teach the residents.
2: That's very well said Dr. Schultz. Uh, (laughs) With that I would like to kind of get into the dissection of the day and uh, I wanted to talk about teaching uh, during a surgical crisis, um, okay. Frequently during traumas, there is like so much happening all at once, and for a trainee, whether it's a medical student or you know junior resident, it can be very overwhelming. And um, so, what what is um, you know what it what are the what is your chain of thought when uh, you know during a trauma activation
0: and how sure. Be, 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 so so I I look at uh you know, a surgical crisis, just like they look very much like a medical crisis when I'm doing EMS medical direction for the city. And that is the very first step happens long before the patient arrives. And that's through preparation. Now, I think if you were to ask a lot of faculty, they would tell you, well, just read and that way you'll be prepared. And to be honest with you, I think that's sort of silly, and I'll I'll be truthful. My in my residency, we were really so busy. I, I don't think I really read anything. I think it was very much immersion learning, and, and I think that still happens today. I, I'm I'll probably get you might hang up on me here, but I really think that residents probably don't do a lot of reading because they're they're working really hard. So I think it's up to the faculty to prepare the residents for, for what's going to come in, in the door. And so, you know, so my first thought is when we get a new group of residents in, one of the things we do is, is we, you know, we run a morning report, which lasts about 30 to 45 minutes. It's really a very Socratic method Oh, uh, it's been described by Jeff Young, who's at Virginia. He's the trauma director at the University of Virginia as war games. And that's probably a very uh, appropriate name for it. We call it morning report because if you call it war games, the, you know, the residents get all nerved up. But, uh, you know, what we want to do is we want to sort of prepare them for what do you do if you have a pH trauma? What are you going to do for bleeding? What are you going to do for this gunshot wound or that stab wound? And so I, th- I think a lot of the preparation comes by going to an interactive conference like that before the patient even hits the door, at least to hit the major uh, things. And it also allows you a chance to do what what I call as a needs assessment. You, you sort of get... You know, uh, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll go through and and you'll be able to say, okay, well, the residents know this in, say, December, whereas maybe in July that group of residents didn't know it. And so it allows us to sort of gauge, you know, where our strengths and weaknesses are going to be in the upcoming months. Uh, And so I think that's the very first step uh, to it is, is really preparing people uh, for all the different eventualities they might face.
2: Also, kind of along the same lines I wanted to ask you is that, you know, being a trauma surgeon has, you know, a lot of, it's, it's fun, but it also brings in the difficulty of not knowing your patient at all and not knowing their history. And often we encounter unexpected anatomy and complications while in the operating room. Um, yep. How do you handle those? Um, any uh, any
0: pearls of wisdom for our listeners? So, so I th- I think the first the first thing to remember, and this is going to sound callous, but I don't mean it that way, and that is the patient is dying, and you are not. And you know, so to me at least, we've made a fundamental error in medical education by people saying it's all about the patients. And I actually view it very differently. I, I think it's all about the doctor, or in this case, the surgeon, and what they can bring to the table and, and because the patient is a helpless victim. And so I think that the first pearl I would tell you is if somebody is dying in front of you, that's not the time to get all nervous because all you can do is really good. Take a breath and you can do really, you can be okay. I think the second uh, rule is to, s- to stay in your lane. Do what you do and let other people do what they do. So if anesthesia is intubating the patient, you know, you, you don't have to micromanage what they're doing or if, the, or if they're resuscitating the patient. You know, you do your job and let them do theirs. I think the third point is to use everybody around you. Uh, Sometimes help comes from a place you may not expect it. And so sometimes, uh, you know, the nurse who's well-experienced or even the tech who's well-experienced can help you in ways you hadn't thought Uh, and lastly and, and this is my hardest part I mean this is the part I don't do as well at or wish I could do better at and that is you know start the resuscitation by getting everybody on the same page if you if you blow into the resuscitation yourself wound up and talking really fast everybody around you shuts down and there's a wonderful resident i learned this from a resident by the name of trey connors who was at vanderbilt and trey would start by walking into the trauma bay as a senior resident and say you know margaret how you doing how's your husband you know your hair looks nice sounds sort of silly but it calmed everybody down so that you know they would work with him if you go in there saying we're going to do a b c and d boy sometimes they just shut down so those would be sort of i think my my big uh, points. Keep yourself calm. You can only do good. Use people around you. Stay in your lane and let, uh, and, and do everything you can to sort of lower the tension in the room.
1: In that same situation, you know, so you've calmed yourself down. You've taken control. But as an educator, in that scenario, when you're in the middle of this high stress situation whether it's a code 99 or, you know, you're in the operating room, whatever, wherever the location is, how do you um, think about keeping the residents or trainees um, involved, making sure that they're learning and not just doing? Um, Uh And then can you talk a little more? I mean, I know from personal experience that we do the debriefs with you. So talking about kind of that third stage after the fact. So, So let me talk
0: about, maybe, the let, let's take maybe uh, a patient in the operating room who's in a crisis. Again, the only thing you, you know, the best thing you can do is do your job as the surgeon. Uh, and like I said, some of that is preparation. You, you have to know, you have to know things like the instruments. And so, you know, a lot of times the residents will say things like, give me a pickups. Well, if you ask for a pickup and you get a Atsin and you really wanted a Debakey, then that's sort of your fault. You, you should know the names of the instruments so you can you can ask for. Them. Second, as far as the teaching part of it goes, it's important. I think to just think, speak what's going through your head. You know, you, you're not going to be able to have some sort of soliloquy on liver trauma. But what you should probably do, you're, you're all, think, you know, everybody's thinking through the steps. As, as the teaching uh, surgeon, I think your job is to really just talk through what's going through your head. And remember, you can always pause. Uh, the pause is, is an important thing to sort of regather your thoughts. But I, I think in the, in the operating room, you know, speaking what's running through your head Provides not swear words uh, is is a good is a good technique. I, I, I think the other technique that is I have found helpful is to you know as the resident is doing what they're doing. I usually somewhere try to fit in there. You know I don't want any. I, you're the person I want helping me with this case, and there's nothing on this case that you can't fix. And I, I really believe that's true. I think surgical residents. Can do a lot more than we give them credit for, and I think at times they can do a lot more than they give themselves credit for. Um, and so there's no harm in in packing and holding or holding pressure and saying, "Okay, this is what we're going to do," and, and reorienting uh, folks, you know, and, and try to say something that's a little bit confidence building if you can. And I think if you're going to do this type of teaching, you have to recognize that you're not going to get it right every time and you have to forgive yourself I think as far as the debrief goes now I I try to debrief after everything and the reason I try to debrief after either a resuscitation or the OR is because if you do it every time then people will be more accepting of the feedback if you only do it when things go poorly, nobody will want to sit down with you So, so I think You know, doing it uh, all the time consistently is good. And what I usually do when I do the debrief is most people have heard of the feedback sandwich. And that's where you say something nice and then you give them some criticism and you say something nice. Well, it turns out that that's not very effective. (laughs) And that's because people only hear the good stuff, right? So you can say you cut the suture nice uh, you shouldn't have cut the vena cava, and your stapling was good. And then the learner only thinks, gosh, I'm a great surgeon because I can staple. And so I think you're, you're a whole lot better uh, just asking people, first off, what did they think went well and what did, what they do differently? And it's very interesting. I think at the level of surgical residents and even medical students, you don't you don't have to chew anybody out right like like residents and students are pretty sophisticated they know when they didn't do it right or it didn't feel right and usually all you have to do is once they recognize that yeah you beating them in the head just doesn't make it better it's better if they' figured it out for themselves uh, and when I do that I usually start with the you know the student or you know, academically lower on the totem pole and sort of go all the way up to the senior person. And, you know, there's always something we could do better, communication or, or whatever. And I found myself at times, you know, I'll say, hey, I, I blew that resuscitation, you know. I was a little heavy-handed or, you know, I wasn't relaxed and I really spun up the room. And so I think... If you find yourself doing the debrief, you have to be as honest as the people you're asking questions to. And, you know, one of the things I think residents that I have found that is helpful, uh, when I deployed with the military, I did my own orthopedic surgery. Now, we weren't doing fancy things. Don't get me wrong. But I was assisting. I was doing cases sometimes. Neuro cases, spine cases, orthopedic cases that I had never done before. And one of the things, the one of the ways we used to train residents was that they would draw pictures and keep operative logs. And now the operative log is usually a sticker and what procedure you did and what date. But I, I would encourage the residents to go out get a, uh, a notebook with plain white paper and some colored pencils. And this is what I do even to this day with, uh, you know, all of my deployments, and even some of my other complicated cases, where after the case is done and after uh, the dust has settled, you know, tape the sticker into a, a plain book, draw out the steps of the operation, go through it. Now, that will serve two purposes. One is it allows you to go through the case and and figure out, well, you know, the table wasn't at the right height, or I didn't have a good exposure of the cystic duct, or, you know, I wish I had done this or that different. Uh, I found that's very, very helpful, and you don't have to uh, worry about, you know, downloading your numbers because you have them. And lastly, and this is a sneaky point, if you're going to work with Surgeon X, and Surgeon X is a real bear, right? Like, like that guy's a real hassle to work with. If you've had a couple times to, to operate with that individual, and you've written down sort of, okay, the steps that he does is A, B, C, and he always uses like a zero vehicle for this step you're going to be in much better shape. You you can sort of be sneaky and review his case before you do it with him. Uh, and, And so that's always a helpful thing, too.
1: I think the topic is relevant beyond the emergency setting. Um, Frequently Uh during elective cases, even we encounter unexpected anatomy or there's complications during the procedure. And, um, you know, depending obviously on the experience of faculty, um, sometimes younger faculty can can get flustered, but even sometimes very experienced surgeons can get flustered and and then the teaching portion of the case kind of ends. Um, Uh So what are your kind of Uh, tips and thoughts on how to maintain the role of an educator during those scenarios?
0: So so I think, I think when the wheels are really coming off badly uh, at that moment, you you might not be able to teach because you yourself might be able, you might be trying to figure it out. Uh, I think when that happens, you, you sort of have to recognize and acknowledge it and say, you know, right now, I'm not going to be really good at teaching. Let me try to figure this out, and then we can go back. I think reframing it because I, I you know, the resident knows when it's going bad too, or the student knows. Uh, so I think when the wheels come off and you're trying to figure stuff out, there's there's no your your first duty obviously is to the patient, and the second duty is to the teaching. And so I think it's I think it's perfectly permissible to say. You know, I can't teach right now because I really have to focus on the patient. And then come back and say, you know, this is what I was worried about or this is what I was seeing that was bothering me. Uh, so I, I think that's the first. It's, it's okay not to stop the teaching if you need to for, for patient well-being. As long as you go back and say, hey, listen, this is what was, was uh, you know, bothering me. And I think in the case of, you know, an unexpected event in the operating room, you know, uh, let's just take maybe, for example, uh, a fire in the operating room, which, you know, is is a scary event. You know, that's probably not the time to say, you know, OK, when you use a fire extinguisher, you pull the pen and you aim at the base of the fire. (laughs) Like that's the time you just got to do it. Uh, so, I, I think, you know, provided that you have a system in place where you're going to go back and debrief and recognize also when the crisis is over and you can turn the case back to the resident, uh, I, I think it's okay occasionally for the attending to take over. I think it may be even okay for an attending at times not to really engage in the teaching thing and, and deal with their first duty. But then come back to it. Uh, I, I think would be my advice. And then the debrief I think is helpful. And this is where I think if you're the debriefer, and it's important to, uh, you know, to, to be as honest with your your you as the attending, as you're expecting the resident to be uh, is helpful. And I, I I think it's very important for for faculty to own up to mistakes, because that occasionally happens, right? The, the faculty says to the resident, you know, cut here, and they cut there. Oh, gosh, I didn't mean to cut that vessel. You know, that, to me, is really on the faculty, too, And uh, that, you know, they're, they're not supervising well, or maybe they didn't recognize it. And I think if everybody's honest that we make mistakes and how to get out of them, then it's completely even.
2: Um, now we move on to our final five. Um, these are just some personal questions um, just for our listeners to kind of get to know you a little bit more. So I'll start sure. off with our first one. Um, is there something outside um, or someone outside of medicine who has been influential in your life and career?
0: Uh, yes. Yes. And that person probably is my wife, but I can't really say she's out of medicine because she has her Ph.D. Uh, in adult learning and specializes in surgical education. <laughs> so she, uh, we, we live education at our house, uh, believe it or not. We talk about it all the time. She was president of the Association for Surgical Educators. I was on the board. Uh, I will let you know, it doesn't make our... Uh, son do any better in school uh he's a football player and so he doesn't have a whole lot of need for school he just wants to lift weights and get strong uh but yeah i would say uh my wife and then interestingly uh my father-in-law who was uh the chair of surgery at michigan state and he was an educator and he, uh, like my wife, has won multiple teaching awards. And so, yeah, we, we sort of have uh, a, a unique family in that regard. Uh, so, so I would say those, those two people. And lastly, and this is going to sound maybe a little bit odd, but I lost my folks when I was in medical school. And I think that has really provided me a very unique perspective from, from a family standpoint as to what these families who, who have no idea what's about to befall them when they wake up that morning. Uh, so I'd say those three people really have had a big influence.
1: Good. So our second question, do you have a favorite movie or genre of movie that you like to watch?
0: I love comedy. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I actually, this, this is probably not known to the residents, but... Uh, I have every uh, every day what I call the fun time and I invite all the secretaries into my office and we watch a funny video usually on YouTube of some uh comedian uh and to make them laugh we've gone through prank videos and recently we've become a uh, fan of uh again. and so uh yeah I, I would say that uh comedy is it i don't know whether that's because i just see a lot of bad stuff every day but i come home every day and force my wife to watch some funny video that we pulled up on the internet during a fun hour or it's not really an hour but fun time at the hospital
2: <laughs> during residency what was your guilty pleasure or go to snack
0: my guilty pleasure during residency uh well Megan, I can tell you this because she's seen me in person, I like to eat. And during my residency in Portland, Maine, there were a lot of great places to eat. So, uh, and I I love eating any kind of food, except for organ meat. And uh, so, uh, yeah, in residency, my guilty pleasure was going out and finding a place uh, that had good food.
1: (laughs) All right. So I'm actually,
0: you may not know this too. I'm actually a certified barbecue judge.
1: (laughs) How did you get that label?
0: I I had to uh, take a course and a test and everything.
1: Wow. (laughs) That's fascinating. So uh, on the other side of eating, if you were to compete in the Olympics, winter, summer, what event would you want to do? It doesn't have to be a sport that you've played before. So
0: so I used to be a swimmer, I used to be a very competitive swimmer, but uh, what I would really do now, if I could do it, is I would do skeleton, uh, because it looks like sled riding, and I think as a fat guy, I would have an advantage.
2: And to wrap up this segment of ours, uh, what would we find in or on your white coat uh, right now?
0: What would you find on my white coat? Well... Right now, in my upper pocket of my white coat, I have what's called my call wallet. And so my call wallet is made out of paper, and it has all sorts of skeletons on it. And and so I keep that there. Uh, I have a stethoscope and my surgical cap and my list, obviously. Uh, But really, I I really like the the call wallet because... The only reason I purchased it, I was at an art store. I do a little bit of painting. And I saw this uh, wallet made out of paper, and I just thought skeletons were cool. And uh, I did a lot of the Ebola transports uh, here in Nebraska when Ebola was going on with the fire department. And I always tried to wear either skeleton cufflinks. Or you, I changed my phone cover to a skeleton because I really thought that that would creep people out. And interestingly, nobody noticed. So uh, it, it was fun for me, but it wasn't. Nobody actually noticed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Dr. Schnartz, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's today. a
0: true, true honor. And if, if any of your listeners, uh, you know, want to contact me about education, they can certainly find me at the University of Nebraska. I'm not hard to find. Until next time, dominate the day.